0: This Quaracast podcast is brought to you by Reframing Our Stories. Did you know most people get their sexuality health information from their parents, their schools, and their churches? Reframing Our Stories provides sexual health education, resources and tools for families and communities to normalize conversations around sex and relationships, remove shame, and reframe our stories to promote openness, acceptance, and a positive sense of self. Schedule a free 15-minute consultation by using our Contact Us link at www.reframingourstories.com. That's www.reframingourstories.com. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey,
1: everybody. Welcome back to the podcast that John and I have lovingly dubbed, we've ascribed to it the moniker, um, this is not church. Why do I say it like that, John? How come ever since like as soon as the mic is on, I, I suddenly turn into a narrator? We have ascribed to this podcast, Monica Rev, this is not church.
2: We are in, in in some ways, we are. We are the narrators of this journey.
1: Sometimes I feel like the narrator of my own life. You ever just narrate your own life as you're walking around? Like what's
2: what's that what's that movie that Will Ferrell did where he kept hearing his own narration? Yeah,
1: I want that. I want that going that on. Oh <laughs> my gosh, because it had um, it was narrated by uh, someone's going
2: to have to fill that in for us. <laughs> doesn't matter. We can sit here and stammer on about it.
1: <laughs> Kenneth Brown's wife, ex-wife, ex-wife, but Emma Thompson. Emma, yeah, yeah.
2: Emma Thompson.
1: Yes, Emma, Emma Thompson. Bruce. Okay. Anyway, but but I just want to walk around and go. You know. And I just want to like stare at something on like a shelf in a grocery store and be like, Nat stared at the, uh, at the various and sundry offerings at his local grocery store with a look of both perplexion and, um, and wonder. <laughs> <laughs> he was completely overcome with the possibilities of choices and he found himself paralyzed. Of said pasta. <laughs> there are 87 different kinds of pasta he mused aloud. Yeah, I'm just saying I can I can do this, and then it, yeah. and then I could like even like create my own theme music as I walk through. You're like doo, 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 doo. Yeah. anyway, yeah. anyway. But that's uh, what
2: your theme music would be.
1: I don't know. Uh, it would be I really bad. Be more like ACDC. It'd be or really something. bad. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd I'd like take a step and go da da da. Yeah.
2: Dah, dah, dah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Dah, 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 dah. I wouldn't be back in black. I'd be back in back of the store. Um, perusing <laughs> all of the dented cans and all the stuff that mom used to make us go shop for. Is there anything Remember? back
2: here marked down?
1: Yeah, where's all the clearance items? Because I'm not paying retail for nothing. <laughs> um, anyway, so so again, if you've if you've stuck around more than the the first two minutes, then then it's your own fault. <laughs> I've given you I've given you reasons to exit gracefully. Um, because this is what we're getting into, and and at, you know maybe some of this is a defense against. Uh, what i know is coming is a very heavy conversation so we're going to try and interject some humor with some of this conversation because um it will be a little deep it will be a little bit um uh, personal i think and vulnerable for for a couple of us anyway so and i and i i do enjoy that but the but the uh white cisgendered american male and me tends to push back against that and have to make jokes. So I have to be comfortable <laughs> somehow, right? Yeah. But we are really, we're overjoyed. We're excited to have our next guest with us. We have Ron Greer with us. And, and let me read a little bit about this man so we can jump into an awesome conversation about uh, this book he has written. And it's not his first book. He's written five books. So uh, let me read this real quick. Uh, Ron Greer is a, a, an ordained United Methodist minister. He's the director of the pastoral counseling service at Tree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta where he has served for every 40 years. He's a fellow with the American Association of Pastoral Counselors and a clinical fellow of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Ron is the author of five books. His most recent book, The Quiet House, uh, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse, is a series of personal reflections following the loss of a spouse, in which he offers paths toward healing, restoration, and eventual transition into a new life that lies ahead. So without any further ado, uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? I am fine. It's good to be with the two of you. Oh, well, we appreciate you uh, hanging out and uh, putting up with our uh, silliness. I, I, that's all I can really say about it, John. I, mean, I don't know. Like, there yeah, are times I when I, I do know. feel quite silly. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. And that makes me think of a scene from. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. When they're about to go to Camelot and they decide not to, because uh, right. it, after all, it is a silly place. <laughs>
2: <You know>? Yes,
1: <laughs> like this is how I feel. <laughs> this is this, these are the weird connections my brain makes. But <laughs> much like that place, uh, this place here is also a silly place at times. But if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit more about yourself than your bio. I mean, I, that's a pretty clinical, you know, sort of description of your life. Uh, t- talk to us about your uh, about your life, your journey, your faith, history, whatever you want to tell us.
0: Sure, I'm. A, I'm a native of Louisiana. I came to Atlanta to seminary at uh, Catholic School of Theology at uh, at Emory. I uh, met Karen here. We were married for almost fifty years, forty nine in a in a few months, and um, I have two adult children. We lost a son in an accident uh, forty years ago this fall, in fact, and so both of my my son and my uh, my adult son and adult daughter live here in town. Along with three grandsons, and so I get to see them often. I'm one of the I'm one of those those honored and privileged grandfathers who actually has who lives in a big city, but has a grandson who goes to school about 800 yards from his house. Oh so, wow, that's,
2: that's blessed
0: amazing. out of my mind. That's amazing. Yeah, I have three grandsons as well. It's uh,
1: and you know the old joke is if I'd known how much fun grandkids were, I would have had them first, right?
0: <laughs> um, well, they are the exactly. best.
1: We were actually talking to—I don't know if you know who uh, Dr. Baxter Kruger is. If you ever read his stuff, but he—we had him on the podcast one day, and we were talking about grandkids, and he's got several, and and like like literally had to end the podcast because my grandson was knocking on the window of the office I was sitting in. Having this, I said, like, "Well, you know," and uh, his grandkids call him Doc, so I said, "Doc, I, I, my grandkids are at the door. That means I have to go." He's like, of course, it's, <laughs> of course, that's what that means. Get out of here. So, uh, <laughs> how old are yours? Uh, mine are pretty young. I, my youngest, my daughter, just had one, and he's going to be a year old next next month. And then I have a nine, almost nine year old, and, and a six year old. Good. So, I'm one do- I, have, I have four adult kids. My youngest adult kid is twenty three. So, and then my oldest daughter has has two kids, and my, her sister has has one. But um, then we heard. I probably shouldn't say this on the podcast, but I have heard there were rumblings that my other son and his wife have begun thinking along <laughs> these terms. And I've promised any one of and I have four, I said four kids and they're all connected. You know, they're all you know, they have they have um they have partners. And um like the first one of you to give me a granddaughter will will own me. <laughs> <laughs> you will absolutely have just bought and paid for whatever Just, just 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 say what you need and do have it i just i'm i will be smitten from day one but anyway so this book um the quiet house obviously it deals with uh it deals with pretty heavy subjects of, of grief um at the loss of a spouse so i know we have lots that we want to talk about just in the process of grief but if you would maybe might just maybe give us an overview of kind
0: of how you approach the subject and 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 how you want to talk about it before we began recording, uh, y'all were about, uh, you were talking about, you were talking now about the uh, male view, how males tend to come at this. And males tend to not do well with grief because we were taught uh, not to feel anything but very limited range of emotions. And therefore, grief is, was not on that, on that list. And we struggle with it. And somehow it's getting, uh, I think there are two things about it. One of them is that we were taught that there is something unmasculine about it. And the second thing is that uh, when it comes to an emotion like grief, we don't like being that out of control. And grief is a profound out of control experience. And uh, it is profoundly healthy. And one of the things that that I learned um, forty years ago, uh, Karen and I lost a two-year-old son in an automobile accident, and I grew up without getting in touch with emotions. I grew up. One of my parents was an accountant; the other was a bookkeeper. No disrespect to either of those those professions, but you can imagine how much emotion was uh, <laughs> expressed at our house. Yeah, my my brother and I have laughingly said that our. Our unspoken family motto was, if you feel it, fake it. We, we uh, plowed emotions underground. I think a lot of males do that. Therefore, when it comes to, to grief, one of the huge, most powerful experiences I had was the first 24 hours 40 years ago after my son died. Clearly, I cried more in 24 hours than I had in the rest of my life put together. And I realized that there was a whole new experience, a whole new emotional world that I had to open myself to if I was going to live the full life I had been given. And I have intentionally done that. And I have learned what it is like to feel what I feel. I've learned what it's like to express what I feel. And um, then when Karen died in 2020, I had the advantage of knowing what to do. And I absolutely gave myself to it. I knew how to mourn and I had the courage to do that because I knew it was healing and I knew it worked. And so for the last three years, that's what I've done. And on a year and and a half into that, I realized how unique the loss of a spouse was. And I said, you know, I think it's time to pull out the computer and start writing again. And so I, I started writing about About this topic. Again, about grief generally, but specifically the uniqueness of the loss of a spouse.
2: Nat and I were raised by very, uh, you know, within our grandparents and then our father, very stoic male figures. I I think I told you uh, off, you know, before we started, uh, we've lost our grandparents. So, but I I can honestly say I never saw either one of my grandfathers cry ever.
1: I I saw Grandpa Smith cry once or twice. So, yeah, I. I don't have that. He was memory, more emotional but, than Dad's dad. Yeah. Yes. Yes. For sure. And he was way more and, affectionate than Dad's dad.
2: Yes. Uh, he's he's he was the first male figure that I had who would actually kiss me. You know, like on the cheek. Yeah. Uh, I didn't always. And did I didn't that. know how yeah. to handle that. Right. I didn't know how to handle that because that wasn't a, it wasn't a male response to affection. Right. And then I honestly, and Nat Nat can maybe speak on this too. I don't have a memory of my dad crying until his mother passed. I don't remember ever seeing my dad cry until we lost our grandmother his mother.
1: And even then it was a
2: very controlled yes. But that that being said like you like you were saying specifically within the male uh you know the way we are brought up is we are to be stoic, we are supposed to be strong, we are supposed to be the the rock. Uh, all those words right that are given to us as the male figure within any kind of family dynamic. So it was to the point where it was, it was almost a, you know, it was shameful or embarrassing that I would cry because I do cry at the drop of a hat.
0: Mm-hmm. And I felt too, like girl. I had to
2: hide that. Multiple things bring me to the point of tears. Uh, being over angry makes me cry. Being sad makes me cry. Being fearful makes me cry. And I felt like I had to hide all of that. And, and, and you also cry when you grieve. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. We were talking again before we recorded that there, there are some opinions of mine that I have had that I think I need to change from reading your book. And we can get into that later. But Nat and I have lost friends Mm -hmm. when we were young. And it was a very like, I don't understand this. Nat and I had a a really good friend in like the second grade, right? Because our our mother worked. And uh, we were always dropped off at the school super early. Because then she went to work. And so there was a group of us kids who I think all their mothers worked. And so we were all dropped off really early, you know, before any other. So there was about four or five of us, and we would sit out in front of the schoolyard and we would play. And then one day, one of our schoolmates didn't show up, and they didn't show up for a long time. And then it was weeks later that we found out that he had passed. And at that age, you know, I was I was in second grade. I think Matt was in first grade. I was in first. He was my best friend. And, yeah, and I didn't know. I had no way. I didn't understand. There was no way to acknowledge that other than this, and I sadly, I don't remember his name. Nat might remember his name. I don't. It was Joel. Joel. And he actually died of Rye's syndrome, which was that, which we all know now that kids under a certain age can't have aspirin if they have a cold or a flu, right? But that was my first step into this idea of loss. And, but again, very, very antiseptic. It was very sterile. It was very...
0: Factual. Joel isn't here anymore because Joel died. But but it was it was weeks that nothing was mentioned,
2: right? Because he, well, he had he had been sick,
1: and we and and yeah, he he was
0: sick. He was sick for some time,
2: and I think they felt the need to not let us know that, right? And then I, I I would say that it was probably at least a week, probably after he passed before anyone told us
1: he he was a school friend. This wasn't like a family friend that we saw, and our families knew each other. He was a kid I knew from school. But that was that was devastating for me to the point that there's actually a chunk of that period of my life that is gone. Like it's just, I think I just as a as a
0: as a five year old, I think I was because I was five in the first grade. Yeah, I just don't. I just think I blocked it out. Did, did anyone did anyone sit down and and talk with you about it about about death? Probably. You know, we we had a pretty good balance in the home.
1: I was going to say this, and John, correct me if you think I'm... Well, and, and again, our experiences in the home can be different just because we grew up in the same house. um, doesn't necessarily mean that we saw things the same way. Um, my experience was that my mom was over-emotional. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but she was... At, that's her primary way of relating to the world. She's emotional. Um, and then my dad was... Is still very logical and reasonable and rational, right? And... But I don't remember ever being told by either one of my parents not to cry. Like, I don't remember dad ever getting mad because I cried. Like, you know, I'll, you know, I don't, I swear to God, he never said I'll give you something to cry about or anything stupid right. like no, that. No, that never happened. It yeah. was not discouraged. We weren't told, like, men don't cry. Um, it was modeled for us that men really don't cry. Um, right. But it was never explicitly, yeah. like, you know, we weren't shamed for it. Um, what my dad would get on me about and what stunted me somewhat was, um, was expressions of anger. Because that was like, hey, you need to control yourself. Like, like you need to, just, cause I was gaslit until I was 20, you know, that, that anger was, was me getting out of control and I needed to calm down. Like, Hey, you know, we're just having a talk here. We're just being, and that's not my, that's not my language. If you piss me off, I'm going to tell you, you piss me off. And you're going to know, know in certain terms that I'm upset. And that's, you know, my dad and I are very different. I was going to say that in, that, in the, that, that when it comes to grief, there is that part of that grief process that is anger. And I didn't know how to process that anger you know because it felt really wrong to be angry at somebody who was dead and say how dare you leave me and you comment on
2: that and i really like that and i'm going to get this wrong because because, Not because i have that's what you memory, do but no, anger is <laughs> anger is a reaction to another emotion right right so, so anger right. could be a reaction to fear anger is a reaction to and i really that was the first time i've ever you know i'm fifty three years old that's the first time I've ever heard someone say that and it's so i'd I'd really like to hear your opinion on or what your what what you meant by that because um it was a it was a huge weight off my shoulders that when I am in a in, when I'm in that moment of anger that it's anger isn't the primary problem anger is a reaction to something else be it fear
0: mourning, grief, something else, right? You're saying it extremely well. That's right. That when I'm angry about something that is significant and, and I'm very angry, that feels so strong, it feels so deep, that has got to be a bedrock of emotion. Right. And in reality, it's a secondary emotion. It's it's just as as you said, John. It's an emotion in response to other emotions. When when I when I think of it, uh, I always go back to the second grade when we learned about the primary and secondary colors. That uh, you put yellow and blue together, you get green. You put hurt and fear together, you get anger. And. Whenever I'm angry, and sometimes the accent's on the hurt, sometimes the accent's on the fear. Whenever I get angry, I look at where the injury is. I look at where the wound is. Where's the hurt? The fear, I always look to the hurt first, for the hurt first, because the fear often is that the hurt is going to be duplicated. It's going to, it's going to, be, it's going to be felt again. And and I look for where the hurt is. I look for where the fear is, because that's when I hit bedrock. That's when I get to what what I'm I'm really angry about. And and when uh, when Karen was uh, uh, was alive, and she and I would we rarely got into into arguments. But when we when we would, and if I had had upset her about something that uh, about what I had done or had omitted doing. Uh, I almost didn't hear her anger because I was listening for where the hurt was. I wanted to know where the injury had been uh, uh, had been inflicted because that's where the healing starts.
2: And I know we're talking about grief and the loss, but I think that's a huge thing that I don't want us to like overstep within conversations with, say, a spouse, or a child, or a parent, if you could get to that point where you could say, "Okay, yeah, I feel that anger, and I hear your anger response," but I would rather find out what's the, what's what's under the underlying reason for that anger, and I think that is the that's the case of healing. That's where you can find healing because you can sit and and be angry at each other, right? And and use your anger towards someone else, and their anger towards you, and you can just that's going to just compound itself over and over again. Or you can be vulnerable and look deeper. And I think that it fits within uh, um, a relationship, and it also fits within uh after and the loss of a relationship which is what your book writes about is cuz i think there can you and i think you comment on this and some people they can live in that anger right the anger of the loss of their spouse and th- and that's just that's now their new world is they're just going to be angry or you could find why why am i angry i'm angry because we said that we were going to do this together We were going to grow old together or whatever, right? You could fill in that blank about whatever you were going to do together. And now that other person is gone. And now you are set, you are set to do this alone, which creates a, a, a moment of fear.
0: Which then turns into ang- can turn into anger, right? That's right. And and in the in, in you're using it to, the the two ways. One is if you're in the relationship, and the other, as you said, in response to the loss of the relationship. Uh, let me c- comment on both on each of those, if I may. The if you're in the relationship, there is, and you use the word vulnerable, and that's spot on. If you're in the relationship and you are asking them questions, wanting to know where their pain is behind the anger, there is absolutely no way that anyone can feel heard more effectively than that. If you are listening that closely and you're asking them about where their pain is, they're going to feel heard and you have just gone light years toward healing whatever the problem is. Then, the second that you mentioned was, uh, was of course, after the, the anger that one feels after the loss. And the, so often that anger has to do with the fact that the, the grief that they feel has, has gone largely unexpressed. And therefore, that's the hurt back there. And the fear is that they're going to be living in this, this state of chaos for the rest of their lives. And, and to, to learn how to mourn the loss is just absolutely enormously important toward, 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 uh, toward feeling the relief both of the grief to allow it to heal, and then the anger will subside. Let me ask, this might be a,
1: this may be a dumb question, or maybe a duh question, maybe dumb's the right, wrong choice, but wrong choice of words. But, so John and I have experienced the grief. We've lost all four of our grandparents. We've lost a dear, dear cousin to suicide. I've lost multiple friends, close friends. And um, we both nearly lost children. We didn't, but we still, I still went through a fairly rough grief process with, with a, an adult daughter that very, very, very nearly died. But is there a substantive difference between that kind of grief? And I can't imagine, I mean, I still, I still can't wrap my head around the loss of a child because I haven't had to do it, but I got really damn close. And the thing that kept running through my head the entire time was like, I don't know how people do this. I, got even, I can't even. I can't even wrap my head around what this looks like, but but is there a substantive difference between that kind of that, that that grief and the grief of a spouse that you have either been married to or been with for a very long time, or that you're just very very close and intimate with? I mean, is there? Do you process that grief differently? Do you think, or is it just
0: variations on a theme? It it really is a a, a different loss. In the field of thanatology, as they say, the, mm-hmm. the study of the study of death, death and grief, uh, one of the one of the lessons that is often taught is that the loss, the death, rather, of a parent is is um, associated with our past, and the death of a the death of a spouse is associated with our present, and the death of a child is associated more with our future. And having lost all three, I'm 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 here to tell you there is there is some truth to the adage. And when I when I think of the of the loss of our parent, you know that that's unless the the parent is lost in an especially tragic way, that usually is not traumatic. It's profoundly sad, but it's usually not traumatic because we expect to lose our parents. Not making light of it, but it is something that's anticipated. That's more connected with our past. We then begin reflecting on our lives, on our childhoods. We then begin reflecting on them as grandparents. We reflect on the past. The loss of a, of a spouse tends to be more associated with our present, with the day-in, day-out present. The, 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 both the Old and the New Testament talk about, and the two shall become one, that as two lives are wrapped up in each other's day-in, day-out, they're living their lives together. Husband and wife are living their lives together. And if one of them suddenly dies, then it's ripping apart the fabric of, of their present lives. Therefore, it's more associated with, and, 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 and what has to be worked out is how they live their present life. And that's where it's very traumatic for some. And then the, the third is the loss of a child is more associated with the future. And that's why it's so incredibly upsetting is that our future with them and then their future beyond our lives, beyond our lifespan, it's it's what I I think of as a a contradiction of nature. They're supposed to bury us. We're not supposed to ever be burying them. And therefore, there is a different tone to each of those losses that, that there is so much in common because loss is loss and grief is grief. But there is a unique flavor to each of those losses, and therefore, there's a, there's a unique dynamic to how we work through those. No, it's, I mean, it makes, a,
1: it makes a ton of sense. I mean, John, like I said, John and I have processed the, the grief of losing all four of our grandparents, and that was sad, and it was tragic, and I grieved the loss of, of, those, of, those, of those people in my life. But you know, my great, my grandfather was ninety something when he passed. You know, I'm not lamenting the fact that he was that you know that his life was cut short somehow that he didn't get to do the things he wanted to do with, with when John and John's John's child was much younger than mine when when he was you know undergoing massive surgeries and all the you know all the, all the things that he was facing. But we were both looking at the possibility of our lives of our children's lives being cut short, and then all of that. Unrealized potential, like no, 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 this isn't what we had envisioned for you. But my, but I deal with the grief with my daughter in the case, and the fact that she's she's disabled from that illness, and then so there's still grief, there's still grief associated with that because all the things that she had planned have now shifted and changed the the dreams. You know what I'm saying? So there's still a grief involved in that where you process through the loss of that potential, all these things that you had planned to do in your life, and now you have to do things differently. John and I, we talked off, offline. John and my cousin and our cousin, John, were much closer than, and John and I were close, but John and John were brothers. I mean, from the time, I mean, they were how many months apart? my well, weeks apart, days apart in age. I mean, they grew ahead. up together inseparable as kids. Um, two weeks apart, celebrated every birthday together, lived together multiple, anyway. That's as close as you've gotten to losing a brother. Matter of fact, I, I won't even say that. You lost a brother. When you lost when you lost Sean, and that is another thing, so would you put and, and again I'm seeing see this is this is, why, this is why I get screwed up because I want to categorize everything. okay, does this go in the category of, 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 of a loss that's part of it's about the future. you know they were supposed to be old men together sitting on a porch and griping about the kids John, telling the kids to get off their lawn. So I would <laughs> right?
2: say that losing a sibling is using your analogy is losing your present and your future. That's, that's exactly what the way I see it. Yeah. So, that's exactly right. Cause we lived our day to day together, right? We had moments where we're like, and like I talked off, you know, we talked before we recorded there. Um, and you talk about this idea of, you know, you don't want to sanctify the person who's gone because then you lose, you lose the, the harshness of some of the issues and you create this ideal or this idealized version of them that is better than they were. And so I, I, I've in unintentionally done this, but I still continue to tell of the stupid stuff that we did or the stupid stuff he did, uh, the things that made me angry about him You know, as we grew up. But I never thought that we wouldn't be talking in our 80s, sitting in a rocking, rocking chair somewhere talking about our kids and our grandkids. I, I never thought that would not be happening. So I lost... A version of the present, and I lost a version of the future. And um, and I, I really want to. Uh, this is something I that I that I have written on, and I I'd like to uh, thank you for the way you wrote it because it, you're making me change my mind on some things. And so I posted after he passed that um, losing someone to suicide or to a or to a very sudden death like your child uh, mm-hmm. pushes. Was unexpected, right? An accident is this idea. I compared having someone who dies from a long illness as they are, they have been surgically removed from you, but like with the precision of a surgeon. So it's a, this, um, this scalpel like precision and the removal of this person from your life. And I explained that losing someone like, like your son or my cousin. In this type of way is more of like a ripping where that's like, there's almost like a hand that just tears away. And so the scars are both painful, but one is precise and easily mended. And the other is this jagged scar that almost can't be closed. But I've never lost a spouse. And I now have to, I think I need to reestablish my ideas of what that means because you knew that your spouse was going to pass, but I don't think that this was a surgical removal of something from you. I think this was still a ripping, a tearing away of a part of you. So that's where I, you know, reading your book says, okay, I had it all wrong. I really did. I wanted to quantify, like Nat says, I wanted to quantify this as if you had this, if you had a long period of time to realize the potential, what's going to happen that you had more, prepa- you were more prepared. But again, like I said, I have never lost a spell. I don't, I I can't even imagine. So do you see, I, I think you can see where I'm coming from, but I think you can also see where I'm wrong, right? Yes, yes,
0: <laughs> yes. So wrong. <laughs> I, I, but, but both of the above. Yeah. The, the, the way I think of it is um when, one dies after a long illness it is a series of deaths it is a series of losses that that they lose their ability to do this and then they lose their strength and they lose their energy and they can no longer do this and it's a series of losses and then especially toward the end as they begin to to struggle and and are, are in greater and greater pain and life is a greater effort then yet another loss. Uh, I, I remember so well, um, Karen would take like 18 pills each morning and 14 in the in the evening, and her last cancer of the various cancers she had was in her jaw, and so to be able to swallow those pills was, was enormously uh, difficult and, 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 and painful. And uh, she was one of the most positive people I've ever known, and I remember her leaning over the sink trying to get that pill down, and hearing as positive a person as I've ever, ever known say, "This isn't living." That I knew that I had lost something more. Now, my focus was not on what I had lost. My focus was on my empathy for her, and that I just—it was just a kick in the gut uh, for for me to know that she was struggling that badly. But it was—it was yet another step along the losses, and the jolt. When it's a sudden death, an accident, person perfectly healthy, and suddenly they die, then all of those losses do hit you at one time. When a person is dying a step at a time, a chapter at a time, yes, you are mourning each of those losses as you go, but this is where when they do take that final breath and their life is over. Yeah. You're overwhelmed with grief. Yeah. Now, you don't have the shock, right, that you do when you pick up the phone and you hear that your loved one has suddenly died in the accident. You don't have the shock because you knew it was coming, but you still have the grief. And so that's where I think you're accurate. John, in the fact that you do see it somewhat differently now, because you still have all the grief, but you don't have the shock. But I, I would say that each one of those steps of
2: those losses, you then hold on to because it's not really, it's not the end, right? So you, each one of those steps, as you're processing through this, this long term illness, you can almost like put them in your back pocket. Uh-huh. But then when, when the moment where you know, there is the final moment. Those all then do come up to the surface again as, and so that's where I think I've been, I think I've been wrong is like, I had this idea that you could put them aside and literally put them aside. That you're through with that. Yeah. Yeah. You're through. Yeah. You're, you're through with that. And I think that's, that's the step that I, I have missed that I am misrepresenting that you have put them aside for the moment. They're still there. So once you get to that moment where everything has come up to its ultimate end, they all come rushing back at you. And I think that's where I—that's where I have been mistaken. Where I thought, like you just said, like you—you—you you, you get to put those aside
0: each one at a time, but you don't. You're holding on to them like in a like in a bag. Uh, d- d- let's take that one more step. When it comes to the grief, either a sudden death or a prolonged dying. Either way, we are mourning the loss of that person. And if the person is healthy and suddenly dies, or if the person has been dying slowly and dies, we still lose that person at the moment of, of their death. And that's what you and I are talking about. Then beyond that, there's not just the loss of the of the relationship and the person, but then there is the grief that comes with the absence of the person. Yes. And just as you were saying about this Profoundly loved cousin uh, that 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 you gentlemen had that you were planning on enjoying the relationship with him for the rest of your life and and there is the absence of of being able to go forward with that person. So often we're focused on their death alone, but their absence is 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 a whole nother loss that we have to endure, and that's a part of the mourning too—is the loneliness that comes with that.
2: Well, and you talk about that in the book too, right? The uh, the the uh, the grief of the of them dying, but then also the grief of them not being there—the absence of them—and those are different types of grief, right? That's
0: right. That's right. Those are different experiences of it. By the way, let me let me as as um, it's not really an aside because it's, it's too important a point. Let, let me define two terms that often are merged, and they're very different terms, and that's grief and mourning. They're uh, they, they are often used synonymously, and they are different. Grief is the is the emotional experience of loss. Anytime I lose someone or something that is important to me, but let's stick with someone who is important to me, then that what I refer to as that mule kick in the gut, is my grief. And my grief hits me because this relationship was important to me. That's grief. Mourning is what I can use to do with my grief. Mourning, grief is not optional. Mourning is and I strongly advise people to opt for it. Mourning is giving expression to my grief. It's giving it a voice. And really, and when it comes to grief, there are three voices, there are three ways to give it a voice. One's to cry it out, obviously. Another is to talk it out with a very dear and highly respected uh, family member or colleague. And then the third is to, to write it out for those who journal. And that's a powerful way of expressing one's emotion is to write it out. But any time I experience any any event that has an emotional component to it, I'm going to be filled with emotional input. It throws me into a state of imbalance. The way I write the ship from the input is with output. That's why I give it a voice. But Again, I wanted to draw that distinction between grief is the experience of the loss. Mourning is what I may choose to do with it, to give it expression. And that is the healthy way to do it. And I did not learn that until I was in my early 30s and my son died, uh, my mid-30s and my son died. Only then did I learn how to do that. And if I don't do it, then then repression, if I repress my emotions, then depression uh, tends to be the result.
2: Yeah, I, no, I agree with you because uh, the grief of, the you know, and I, do, I don't want to keep coming back to very specific events, but this is probably the most, you know, the most specific event in, in Nat and my life that we can use to to explain this. is. So the grief when my dad called and let me know that my cousin had passed was literally what you just said. It was a mule kick to the chest. Um, I'm not. I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that I dropped to the ground. I lost, I dropped the phone. I threw the phone when my dad told me that. My wife had to pick the phone up and finish the conversation. I could not finish the conversation. That was the grief moment. The morning came from conversations with my brother and my dad, his daughters, my aunts, my uncles, as we remembered who who he was. And then we all together Tried to find a way to move forward. That was that was our morning. Now the morning, I think, stays with us, but it changes, right? Well, I think grief stays with us too. I don't. I don't want to oversimplify the, or uh, simplify this. I think the grief stays with you as well, um, but it is, it is your ability to move past that and to speak on the grief that allows you to find those good days in the morning which can go on and on, but it changes, is your ability to acknowledge that this person meant something to you and to not lose sight of their connection to you and to find a way to the future
0: without them. Someone once said that you know that you are well on your way toward healing your grief when you think of your loved one. And your first thought is of their life, and no longer of their death, as your first thought. And 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 I think there is a lot of truth to that, and that that's what I what am reminded of as you as you say that, John. That, that when I get far enough along and and just so often, well, I, I, I remember um, I remember after the first anniversary of uh, of Karen's death. I would the day after that first anniversary, and that first anniversary was awful. Uh, It was it was like I had revisited her death all over again. And then the next day, I was back in my counseling office at the church, and I have a beautiful picture of her that that sits under a lamp. And as I was turning out the lights, as I was leaving, I I always uh, would look at that picture and what I said on that first anniversary was I got to be with her. I get to be with her. And, and, And she and I were together for 50 years, married 49 of them. And I said, I got to be with her. And up to that moment, I had always said, look at all I lost. And there was a transition there and it was not planned. That just spontaneously came out. But somehow I had, had made a turn, and I, wa- I, I knew then that I was successfully moving forward with my healing. Nat and I and our cousins had the
2: uh, had the opportunity that we all got together, because our, our cousin John, his sister, lives in Montana, so we don't see her very often. But for just a series of events brought us all together a, a little bit before his passing, so we have this moment of all of us being together, we have photographs of us being together. Uh Of those, and there's moments, and there's pictures of me and Nat and and my cousin John laughing. Right, there's like literally like belly laughing, laughing. And so I can I can now look. It took me a while. It, I'm not, not going to lie. It took me a while that I can now go to that. That's the memory I have now. Not of the moment that I got the phone call that told me he was no longer with us, but those... Now I can go back to the the stupid things we did at the river. (laughs) The moment moment where Nat and I are literally stopping traffic on a road because my cousin wants to do the biggest jump he's ever done on his motorcycle.
0: (laughs) And getting in trouble
2: (laughs) because we literally stopped traffic on a road because he had to cross the road. Those moments are hilarious, but those are us. And so I have moved past that moment where all I remember is that phone call, right? And now my memories are these ridiculously hilarious moments of our childhood and us growing up. And I can, I still cry, but I laugh and I cry. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the important part of healing, right? is this ability to get past this this moment the horrendous moment which was for you was sitting with your with your children as she passes right Yes. and then yes. go then go back and go but but there's so many more memories that that outweigh that one
0: john you would not be able to celebrate the memory of the two of you stopping traffic to <laughs> do that on his motorcycle—you would not be laughing with with the two of us right now about that. Had you not mourned, and but you did. You opened yourself up to the pain and you let it out and you let it flow, and that's how the healing happens. It, it, it sounds so 101 and it is basic. It's not simplistic, but it is basic. But that is how your healing happened is that, that you are, were able to, to courageously engage it. And now you can celebrate those wonderful times. And I, and I don't want anyone to think that this is easy. Oh, no. Because
2: it's not. Um, I, I went through i went through a process i have never had any kind of what you would call PTSD in my life i don't even i didn't even know how to quantify it uh, I was on a volunteer fire department for quite a few years after my cousin passed I went to my first training that we had together uh after i knew you know after i, I knew he had passed and there was a moment where i had to step away and say i can't do this because my, my, my whole being has lost control of its itself. Uh-huh, uh-huh, and I went uh-huh. off to the side and I cried. I uncontrollably cried over my inability to hold a hose correctly, which I had been told multiple times, Hey, you're doing it wrong. And it never bothered me. And I'm holding a hose in this, like this very normal training. And I completely lost my mind and I had to walk away and ball my eyes out. And that was my first moment. It was like that's that's PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. That is you not understanding how to deal with
0: your grief. Yeah, tweak that that slightly. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, There's a there's a PTSD is a diagnostic category of mental illness, and they've come up with a new term. I don't know to whom I should I could give the credit to but it's called PTSI, and that PTSI is something that is experienced by someone like yourself who is mentally healthy, but PTSI, but, but has that kind of reaction from their history. PTSI is post-traumatic stress injury. Mm, I okay. I get it, it is not a diagnostic category because you're mentally healthy, but it is a wound that is not yet healed. Okay. Yeah, and I found so, that to yeah. be a very helpful distinction.
2: Well, and it, for me, it was like it was obviously it was it was a panic attack, right? I, I was I yeah. was I was violently thrown into a panic attack. Right? Absolutely, Which I had never I had never had in my life ever. And yes. luckily for me, I, I had a good enough relationship with our the fire chief and the fire captain that they already knew the the level of stress I was under. Uh so yeah. they were able to pull me aside and say, "Hey, just just sit over here um you're not you're no one's shaming you no one's no one's thinking anything weird about you. Oh, how wonderful and just sit over here and you know collect your thoughts, and when you're ready, step back in you know it's very easily you can very easily put be put in a situation like and, and and sadly, my wife knows this because I've done this to her multiple times." Because I had said to her in the moments of panic attacks, which I didn't understand until I had one, you're fine, why are you acting like this? That was my response to her. Until I had a panic attack and then I'm like, I am so sorry. Yeah. I have been, my response to you has been wrong for 20
1: years. But until you experience that, John, there's no way. Like there's no way, but there's no way to know that until I, 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 I liken it to this. I didn't know I was claustrophobic until the first time I had to have an MRI. There was not a snowball's chance in hell I was staying inside that machine. I couldn't explain to you the reaction I had. It was un, it was unreasonable on every single level, but every every cell of my body was like, get out, get out, get out, get out. I, what I love about a book like yours and what I love about our, our willingness to talk about this kind of stuff is it gives us language to deal with stuff that we otherwise would have a hard time defining, like okay, until this happened, I didn't know what that was. I had a I had a similar reaction to that that like John's talking about with our cousin, and I and and I would I would have I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a combat vet who deals with traumatic brain injury and PTSD and all kinds of I mean he's this is a guy who's some days crippled by by PTSD. Um it there's not a part of his life that it has not negatively affected, right? And I was describing to him, I was we were just chatting one day and this is after my daughter had we'd gone through what we'd gone through with my daughter. She was comatose for several months and um, oh, we were in the hospital for months and months and months while she was, you know, on the brink of death and anyway. So long, very, very long story. I won't bore I won't bore you with the details, but, but I, I I was telling him like like a year after this happened, we had to take her back to the hospital. She survived her, her ordeal. We had to take her back to the hospital for a checkup and I lost it because everything in that hospital triggered everything in me. Uh-huh. it was the smell of the hospital. It was the sound of the machines beeping in the, and he's like, dude, that's like PTSD. I'm like, yeah, but it's not that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to equate it to what you go through because of your, your experiences. Right. But, but, but now so now i have language oh no no btsi that's right okay so yeah there's a so for me it was more about uh, an instance something and 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 i live my life normally 99% of the time but there were multiple times when i walked into an environment that was reminiscent of what we endured and i was man i was instantly like transported like oh my god and i'm just and i and i panicked and i freaked out i'm like oh my god why am i freaking out and it happened to my daughter too. The first time she had to go back to the hospital for something, and and she she's like, "Why am I freaking out?" I'm like, "Well, what you, why wouldn't you freak out? This
0: is the last place
1: that you you know we brought you to, and then you, you stayed for nine months or eight months." But so yeah, anyway, all of that very very long way of saying, I think I think one of the one of the best tools that a book like yours provides is this kind of language that helps us make sense of these things that otherwise might derail us and like, okay, what am I? Or, and also give us permission to feel those things that we need to feel and process and mourn. So, so
0: anyway. Let let, let me comment on on that. That, what I, it's what I have come to call scattered showers. That you remind me of that when you talk about these experiences that happen later on. Same thing, John, that you were talking about that, that we, as we are healing, that we if we get farther as we get farther and farther down the road that there is the sense that we're through with it well you <laughs> know, right yeah back it, it oh, off. all Maybe, over I'm good yeah I'm good exactly <laughs> we move on and uh, the, the where we cheat ourselves there is that uh, that we don't we don't allow and we don't honor those scattered showers that that something can come up uh, it was interesting the other morning, I was thinking about, just out of the blue, I was thinking about one of Karen's doctors. And uh, all of her, she she just had wonderful doctors and they, they all were excellent clinicians. But there was one who was so kind. And there was something about his kindness that I was thinking about and I just burst into tears. And I probably cried for 90 seconds and then I was done and i just think of a hot july afternoon sun is out and then suddenly i realize it's gotten dark and then suddenly there's a scattered shower there's an afternoon summer shower and it rains for 15 minutes and then it moves on and the sun comes back out and if i as i get farther and farther down the road of my healing with my grief i By golly, am going to honor those scattered showers. Because that means that that's my PTSI. Yeah, yeah. I'm still healing. Well that's that's how I facilitate the healing. What what I I, I call so I have the same I
1: have the same concept, but I I call them sneaker waves. Mm -hmm. Because John and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And we live in a you know, we grew up in a very dangerous part of the country as far as Beaches. How many times we go to the beach with Dad? And, you know, it's like, okay, don't turn your back on the water. Don't turn your back. Because this was not, you know, these weren't tranquil beaches, you know, uh-huh. in Southern California. These were wild and dangerous uh riptides. And so and you could be, you could be standing. In fact, this happened. This is this is hilarious. I'm thinking about it for the first time. I was with my daughter a year after she got out of the hospital, and I promised her, in the hospital, I promised her. Uh, Because we live in Texas and all our other family lives in California. So I promised her, when you're better, we're going to California and we will walk on the beach. And so I, I obviously, I, I fulfilled that promise, right? As soon as she was physically able, we went, we drove across the country, went to California, took an awesome road trip with her two brothers and had a great time. But the first place we were able to do it, we stopped at a beach and she walked. And at this time, she's she's 20 and she's carrying a full oxygen tank with her. And she's on a in, a, in a carrier with wheels on it. You know what I mean? It's this, this most cumbersome. She's, she's barely able to take 10 or 12 steps without having to stop and catch her breath. You know, that's how bad she is. And, but we're, but she's walking close to the water and out of nowhere, bam, she gets taken out by a wave and she just got taken down. I mean, like it, she went flying, her auction tank went flying, everything went flying and. The, they're actually, we were actually, were in Southern California at the time, John, but the <laughs> lifeguard, this is weird, but the lifeguard on the beach loses his mind. He's freaking out because he's, he sees this obviously disabled girl just get taken out and rolled out to the ocean. I mean, like, like she's never coming back. But that's what I think of when I think, cause for me, there is this, there is this tendency sometimes, and, and we talk about this, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording to think of this grief process as linear. And, and, and when we approach it that way, we don't allow for those sneak attacks or those scattered showers or those things, or, or we, you know, we, we say, man, I'm going to progress through this. I'm going to go, okay, first stage is this. Okay, I did that. Check the box. And second stage is this. I did that. Check the box. And then And then suddenly we're in like stage four or five, whatever. And then then all of a sudden, stage two comes back, and we're pissed off again. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, well, wait a minute. And if we're if we don't understand how nonlinear this is, I I did this with a couple of you know I, I know I did this where I was like, I there was a little bit of um of recrimination on myself from like, how come you're still dealing with this? This is a stage two thing, and we're in stage four. Talk about that, that process of going through it not being necessarily obviously like step one, two, three, four, five.
0: To use a quote that uh, uh, in this context that I once heard in a different context is to be dealing with the emotion of grief is like listening to an AM radio on scan. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've done it's that. I've done that. <laughs> you, have, you have no idea what station it's going to land on next? Yeah, no. The I only, the only thing, and there is no predicting it. And and you know, as 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 we have talked about that that with the Elizabeth Kubler Ross's uh, five stages. That, that people so because of the chaos of what they were living, and we were talking about this this earlier, because of the chaos that people are living in, especially early on in their grief, they nailed that down as linear five stages, just as if you were playfully uh, talking about uh, uh, going back to a previous stage as not allowed. Well, it's an AM radio on scan. We have no idea what emotions can going to pop up next. But we have got, if we're going to lead healthy lives, we've got to honor whatever emotion pops up next. Yeah. And we have got to deal with it. And, and we've got to find a way to honor it by, by working it through be be that talking out and, and, and one of the things, and, you know, especially with the holidays coming up, uh, it's just such a powerful time for people. It's, it's the proverbial empty chair. Well, it's, it's also a literal empty chair for so many families and for the families that, that, uh, who are listening right now, that's going to be a powerful time. And, and I absolutely, uh, Urge people to do a number of things uh, as, as they're anticipating the holidays coming up. And one of them is to honor each of these emotions and expect these emotions to be powerful and to, to, to do their mourning going into the emotions. And the second thing is, uh, if, it, if this is a first holiday without a family member like a spouse or like a sibling or like a, a, a deeply valued cousin, um, or certainly a child or a parent, going to, to to have someone to alert them before the holidays and say to them, I may need to call you and talk with you for eight minutes, so I want you to be on standby because I, I may be calling. And you've got your one or two best buddies, and, 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 and you, you do that. You call them up and say, let me just tell you how I'm doing. You also you also do the very things on those holidays you want to do and you don't do the things that you don't want to do. You hang with the people who give you energy and you graciously avoid those who don't. You do all those things that are good for you. As I have said to countless counselees, you let this be the most selfish Thanksgiving or Christmas of your life. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will yeah. say because my, 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 my wife lost
1: her mom a few years back now. and. And I think we all know this experience if, if you've lost someone close to you. I mean, and and, and I think it's I think it's I, I do think it's it's a unique when it's a parent or a spouse. I mean, there is that anyway. But that first that first Christmas was rough. My mother in law's birthday was on Christmas Eve, so Christmas Eve is is was Christmas Eve was her holiday. We didn't celebrate Christmas Eve; we celebrated Carol's birthday. You know, and it just happened to coincide with Christmas Eve. Whatever. We continued to do that. We're like, I'm not going to let that go just because she's not here. We're still going to celebrate your mom's life, and so we made a conscious effort to, matter of fact, for the first year or so, we set a table, we we set a place at the table for her, and we're like, we're going to acknowledge the fact that she's not here. We're not going to gloss over this and just get past it. We're going to deal with the grief that is the loss of your mom because it was tragic and it was too soon, and it was, and it's left a humongous gap, and so. I think there's healthy ways. I, and I think your, I think your book would, would attest to that. There are healthy ways to, to acknowledge that. That's one of the things that, that I think is so helpful with a book like yours that, um, because you're a hundred percent right. I believe that, like, these aren't things we're taught. And, and a lot of what we intuit about how we should deal with these things are not correct. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're either cultural or they're based on our family experiences or whatever. There's, so there are things that seem right, like we should do this. And I think the thing you just said is not one that we would intuit. Like, hey, you're entitled to be a little selfish this time of year. Like, you need to attend to your own mental health and your own mental well-being here. And you don't have to, because my wife for the first year or two probably worried way more about how everybody else was feeling. When she was the one suffering the greatest degree of loss here, this was her mother, wasn't my mother, but she was still very, very concerned with how we were all doing um i wish i'd had the language to tell her don't worry about us you know you you be as selfish as you need to be in this and we'll all
0: do our best to help and and, and assist but i have the the just most wonderful memory <laughs> when uh, in the midst of this horrible era time of our lives we i, I have this one moment that the sun just broke through and it was when our our son who died was our two-year-old son, Eric, and he was on um, a ventilator for two days. And then uh, they did the EEGs, and of course, both of them came back flat, and so we took him off the ventilator. And two days after the accident, uh, he legally died, but he was killed instantly. But he was in intensive care on the ventilator. Our other son, who was six at the time, was on the, in the same hospital, down the hallway, he was in the same accident and in the same car, and he was in a body in, in, uh, in traction um, and uh, would be in a body cast for several weeks afterwards. So we had our two sons were at the opposite ends of the hallway in the uh, in the hospital. and Karen and I were just blessed to have countless friends, and our friends had literally lined the hallway between intensive care where Eric was and the room where Patrick was, they, they lined the hallway. And so we were in there spending time with Eric and then Karen and I came out and we were making our way down the hallway that was lined with these friends. And I'm speaking to everyone. I'm a, I'm a cordial kind of guy and I was speaking to everyone as I was going down the hallway, thanking them for coming and I get to my buddy Bill and Bill is the person with whom I had done my pastoral counseling training. I get to Bill and I extend my hand. He does not shake my hand. He grabs both of my arms and with this, 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 uh, I just, both of you have beards and you remind me of him with (laughs) this this long beard. Bill and, and he was not, he was not staring at me. He was glaring at me as I was being so cordial to everyone. And remember to this day, Bill said, Greer, you ain't hosting this dadgum function. <laughs> <laughs> and Nettie was saying to me exactly what you were talking about. This is to be, we're here for you, Hoss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're here for you. You let this be the most selfish time of your life is how I phrase it to, to, to these people. And that's what Bill was saying to me. You let this be a selfish time and you let us love on you. And, and going into these holidays, I hope everybody will, will honor that and, and let it be about them. And then you turn to, but, but, but as you gather for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever the occasion, then you turn to your other family members because it's also about them. They're also going through their first Thanksgiving or their first Christmas. And you say, okay, let me tell you what I need. And I want you to tell me what you need. We're going to work together on this. And that's when you, you, you really become a family.
2: These are words and, and wisdom that I wish I had, you know, years ago when I lost my grandparents and I had that, that, that knowledge to say that to my parents. And uh, I, I wish I had the knowledge and the wherewithal to say to myself. Or to or to Nat, or to my my cousin's sister, or to his daughters. Uh, this is your time. Be as selfish as you want to be, or as you need to be.
1: Well, and don't be too hard on yourself, John. Because you no, were I, that you were that for John's daughters. Hundred you know, percent,
2: and I and we try right. We try to be that for
1: for the people who are left behind. I, I don't think we would have put it in those terms, but I watched you take care of them. It was good. I mean, it was, I think you, you know more of this than you think you know.
2: But I, I really appreciate the words you have just said. Those are words that people need to hear, that it's not, it's not a moment of weakness when you say, I need to be selfish and I need to take care of me and you need to understand that, um, that. Um sorry I'm like tearing up already. I, I um, know
1: I've I've spent 3 quarters of this conversation on a verge of tears so it's fine.
2: <laughs> I wish I wish I had the I wish I had the vocabulary I guess is what I wish I said. I wish I had read your book you know 5 years ago. I wish I had re- I, you know obviously this book was not written 5 years ago but I wish that I had this vocabulary and I hope that people can take from this the what you're what you are offering which is it's tremendous, um, and I'm I'm not blowing smoke. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I don't I don't normally gush or talk like this. But people need to understand that as they're going through this grief, that they need to put aside the people who don't understand their grief and pull into them the people who are willing to help them move forward in their grief. And if and if if it's someone who is not making you feel comfortable, you set them aside. You don't have to be mean about it, but you put them to the side and you move forward. People who understand are going to be the people who are going to be there, lifting you up and helping you take that next step. Right?
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, there there is a sense of immediacy to some of this. Like this can't wait. Like this isn't like something you can put off until I'll just put this grief aside and I'll deal with it in a year or two. Yeah. I right. mean, that's not healthy. That's just gonna that that's that's something that I think and, and again, this kind if if we want to bring it back religiously full circle, we can we can lay some of this at the feet of religion, who has who has, you know, either implicitly or explicitly told us over the years that self care is not important. Like that's and and we've devalued the we've devalued mental health. We've devalued self care and we 've couched it in sometimes terms that make people feel either selfish or weak because they need to seek help someplace um, that's
0: that 's a place where I think religion has failed us quite a bit and 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 uh, uh, certainly i certainly resonate w- with what you're saying uh and and it, it is ironic because when I think you used the word empathy a few minutes ago now and and when i I think of um when I think of empathy in the scriptures, uh, I go back to the to Jesus walking in Mary and Martha's house, and all he had to do was look at the grief on their faces and the tears in their eyes, and he was moved to tears. That's empathy. What? 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 Um, Gosh, I'm 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 just so aware of of the 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 origin, the importance of the origin of of these words. Sympathy. May, may, may I do a, a a quick word study yeah, here? Please do yeah. Sympathy. Both of them, sympathy and empathy, both obviously have to do with pathos. Have to do with suffering. Pathos is the is the root of each word, but the sim in sympathy means with people in their, with someone in their suffering. sim means with, m means in. So sympathy is a good thing, but empathy is so much deeper. Sympathy is to be with someone in their suffering. Empathy is to be in their suffering with them. It's a very
1: important distinction because when I talk to people, I'm a a former pastor, when I would counsel or speak to people who are going through grief, what I would say is, because the question comes always, where's God in this? And my my only response is God is in this with you. God feels what you feel. If you believe the gospel at all, if you understand that God is love, um, the way that this is the way I envision God, then God is not necessarily always the one who's going to step in and fix everything, but there is a God who will suffer with you. So Christ is, so is, is co-suffering love. That's empathy. That is someone who's willing to sit with you in your grief. And
2: in that, we, we've all learned, right? We all know this because it's it's that trivia moment within the Bible. So what's the shortest verse in the Bible? And the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, right? All right. But it wasn't until recently that I was given indication of what that, that verse really meant. So we have this very short verse, two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. If you look at the original language of that moment, it's a, it's a crying of anguish. It's a crying of pain. It's a crying of loss because he lost someone near and dear to him. Lazarus Lazarus was like a brother to Jesus. So we have this idea, and I mean, it's, it, the trivia of it is, okay, it's, it's the shortest verse in the Bible because there's only two words, but those two words bring about so much power because the the way it's written, it's not Jesus like shed a couple of tears. Jesus was wailing in in horrendous. I don't want to use the word torment, but the the, the idea of the loss of someone very very important to him. So uh, it's it reminds me of the story in, in that you say uh, in your book about a, a girl while while the pastor is pr- uh, praying, right? Yes, as she starts to wail. It's while
0: I was having the
2: prayer. Yes. Right. This is grief. This, and this, and that's what Jesus is doing. It's this, it's this, he's emitting this, um, loss in the most primal way he can. And that is in this, these, these overwhelming sobs. And that's what those, those two words mean. But we want to gloss over them and say, Oh, Jesus
1: cried. I, I always envision Jesus with these racking sobs. Uh-huh. you know, these full body, you know, which is, you know, yeah. Cause in those times when we are really overcome with grief, that's that, that's, that, I think most of us can relate to that experience of just this uncontrollable, you know, yeah. John got the phone call from my father that, uh, our cousin had taken his life. It, that, and that's the thing. Suicide's, I think suicide has got to be a whole nother category of grief because it is so, well,
2: there's so much, there's so much, um, baggage there's so much baggage if, if you're raised in any kind of religious religious upbringing there's so much baggage that connected to it
1: well and there's and and then there's the added you know there's the added dimension of what could i have done how do we not see this so there's a whole i think that's that's got to be um its own sort of special category because you know i love to categorize so but it's got <laughs> it's got to be you know because it's not simply that somebody died tragically i, I had a really good friend I have really good friends that we've known for years and years, and they lost their uh, 19-year-old son uh, in a car accident coming home for Thanksgiving, and he just died, you know? And that that's that's sudden and tragic and unexpected and and wasteful, you know what I mean? You just go, God, that's just, ugh. And then there's suicide. And you say, you know, so John gets the phone call. Uh, John called me. I was in Odessa, Texas at a Christmas party. No, no. Couldn't have been a Christmas party. We were watching football. It was August when when John died. Why, why did I say Christmas party? I was at a... I, I knew I was in an office function. Um, some I'm, I'm, at, I'm at work with a bunch of people I kind of know. Uh, We've gotten together to watch a football game, I think, at a bar. And, uh, and I literally walked outside and did what John did. And I threw my phone and I crumbled to the ground. And I'm like... But I'm in public. <laughs> I'm like in the outdoor patio of this bar going... Okay, I can't go back in there. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's this. You know, there there are these there are these stages and these. I don't know. I, I'm not even sure where I was going with this. Except it helps to talk about it. You know, it helps to it helps to verbalize and vocalize and give give you know give voice to some of those things that you feel. And that's what I think. You know, again, what something that a book like yours does so well, John. Go ahead. I'm sorry, man. Well,
2: and, well, I was just saying. I think. And well, and I think that's what your book does, and what what your book gives us permission to do, almost asks us to do, is you need to you when these tragic moments happen, and it be it someone dying of cancer, or someone dying in a horrific accident, someone dying unexpectedly, dying from something you knew was going to happen. You need to pull around you the people who you can trust, that they can see the version of you that is angry sad uh, needs to scream cry whatever you need to do without any kind of idea of how to fix you other than to sit with you and i think that's what that's what we're talking about when we talk about empathy the difference between sympathy and empathy sympathy says i'm going to sit with you and i'm going to tell you why these these ideas are good or bad empathy says Oh, I, I've been through this crap too. And I'm and just going to sit with you. I'm just going to sit with you. I'm not going to give you the the polite answers. I'm not going to give you the... And we've all Cushed. heard them, right? I'm yeah, not going to give you the cliches. The- I'm not going to give you the platitudes. I'm not going to say Jesus needed another angel. I'm not going to say, you know, if it's a, a loss of a child, you know, well, apparently God needed another kid on his baseball team. All that BS. Oh, Christ. That's all Please the sympathy. That. That's, that all falls under sympathy. Empathy says, I'm going to sit with you and give you something or nothing, but I'm going to sit with you until, you until you want to speak. I don't have to say a word. You don't have to say a word. Or maybe you do, right? It's my ability to say, I have no idea what's going on. You have no idea what's going on, but we're going to sit here together. You you are going to give them your presence, right? Yeah, exactly right. My the biggest thing I've ever been able to tell people once they get when they're in these situations is
0: I have zero words to tell you, exactly. And 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 what what I have have heard from countless people over the years is that as the line came following the memorial service of their loved one. As they stood and, and greeted everyone in that line, they do not remember a single word anyone said. All they remember and what they deeply value are the faces and the embraces. Yeah, They exactly remembered right. who was there and they remember who hugged them. And what you say is interesting but irrelevant. That what who we are with them, the fact that we are present with them. And I love the way you were, were were describing that. That 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 we pull up a chair and we ask them, "How are you doing?" And we then shut up, And mm-hmm. we right. listen. And we listen. Yeah. We listen. listen attentively.
2: And sadly, we've we've been brought up in this world of where we pull where people come up to us and say, "How are you doing?" And and your response is, "I am fine." Right. And what I would say is at this moment, you're like, that's not true. I'm not fine. You're not fine. I'm not fine. Yeah. But that's okay. You just, you you tell me what you want to say or don't tell me what you want to say. I don't care. I'll be here. It's like uh, I had a friend recently who passed, uh, her husband passed and she walked into where I work and all I did was I walked up to her and I gave her a hug. Uh-huh. I said, I have nothing to say. Perfect. There's nothing I can say. I, I grabbed her, I hugged her, I held her for as long as she wanted to be held because there's nothing I can say that's going to make her feel better about the loss of her husband.
0: And, and, and to me, what people do with the platitudes and the cliches is the, in, the person is in the ditch and they're trying to talk them out of the ditch. Well, there's exactly. no way they can get out of the ditch they're They're in mourning, they're in the ditch, so what I need to do is to jump in the ditch with them, yeah, yeah, I need to give them the the absolute blessing of 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 presence there's something and and, and 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 to me that's that's a part of what Jesus was talking about when he talked about where two or three are gathered uh he didn't say when they're in the same geographical proximity, he said when they gather together, and when you gather with someone just like you were talking about just now, John, when you are with someone and you are there to listen, if they want to talk, you are there to sit with them in the silence if they want to be silent. It's their moment. Whatever it is that they want, that's presence. That's where two or three are gathered. Therefore, it is a sacred moment. Slip off your sandals. Exactly right. 100%. It's like,
2: it's, it's it's for me, it's as simple as if someone is drowning, do I sit on the side and, and, and yell platitudes? Swim harder. Exactly. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. Paddle yes. more. Uh, Keep your head above water. Or do I yes. jump in and grab them and hold on to them and, and swim them to shore?
0: Uh-huh.
2: I mean, those are both of them. I mean, I could say, hey, I was yelling at them, I was yelling at <laughs> yeah. them to swim harder. I was yelling exactly. at them to this is where I am, this is where the safe spot
1: is. I demonstrated the breaststroke and they just wouldn't follow.
2: Yeah, or do I jump in and grab hold of them and be the buoy they need. Exactly. And that's that's for me is the difference again, the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is standing on the side saying, I don't know why they drowned. They they I gave
1: them all the direction they needed. Well, and and, and I think you would agree there's a place for both, right? I mean, obviously, you know, there's, it's not as though sympathy is bad, but sympathy cannot be confused with empathy.
0: That's right. Know? One is right. It, it, one is lighter than the other. Right. So I can sort
1: that. of, I can sort of gauge whether or not I can, because I can't give that to everybody. If let's be honest, you know, I can't crawl in everyone's ditch with them. That's going to be reserved for people, <laughs> you know, like John. Um, <laughs> so, so we can be sympathetic, and that's good. Um, and I think there's the next level would be, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sit with you and your group. That's what my friend Kelly Holland, if you're listening, Kelly, um, I mentioned you on the podcast, Kelly, um, <laughs> Kelly Holland, one of my favorite people in the world. But that's, that's one of the things that we talked about a bunch when I was pastoring because I was frustrated with that. I don't know what to say when somebody comes with this world of hurt. And, you know, you're a pastor, you know, I mean, people just want to come and give it all. And so. I, I was asking her for counsel, and that was her, her best advice to me, and I still take it to this day. She's like, "You don't have to do anything; just be willing to sit with them in their grief. And just be a, and like you said, just be a, just be a present. Offer your presence, because obviously, you 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 know as well as I do, John. In the middle of all that crap, where's advice going to? How much how much advice are you taking at that point? None, zero. So I'm not taking anyone's advice. I mean, I'm not, I mean, there'll be time for that later. But in the throes of all that stuff, the last thing I need is is somebody telling me either how to how to process this correctly or, you know. Well and and
2: I would ask but, I would ask Rhonda this. I mean, as as you know, as your wife passed and you're and you're being and all these people are are around you, do you remember advice or do you remember love? Oh, always always love. Always love. So all the advice that people are like, hey, do this, do that, make sure you do this, make sure you do that, that kind of goes out the door or out the window. But the people who are willing to sit with you and say, I don't know what kind of pain you're going through, but I will be here with you every step of the way. Those are the people you remember.
0: People, people really don't even, they, they they don't even hear the advice uh, because because it is, it is just... Uh, First of all, they they have so much that's already going on in their head and in their heart. They don't have the bandwidth for it. But secondly, they know how irrelevant that is. It's, it's 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 interesting the the times with with both of the major losses in my life. The the and there have not been many times that people have have come up and said things that were stupid. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they did. But there were some. Given what I do professionally as a pastoral counselor, they're 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 a little (laughs) careful about what they say, and and, but but the times that they do, there are two thoughts that that just as time went on, there were two thoughts that consistently came to mind when they said something that was stupid, (laughs) Uh, and uh, one of them was well at least they had the guts to step up and say something, and not everybody did. Sure. Second thought. Was thank God they said something stupid, because it means they've never been here. Yeah, yeah true. Had they had they experienced it? Had, had they been through a parallel experience? You're right. They wouldn't they would have known better? So thank goodness they've never been here. And and I thank them for stepping up and did not comment on the uh, on the brilliance of the comment yeah I, I have a third response yes. but it's probably not appropriate so no.
1: <laughs> you've you've got our undivided attention there, there there's an obscenity or two involved with <laughs> I, and I let some of those fly I'm like uh-huh. you know because it you know I'm like seriously like you need to get the hell out of my room uh-huh. you know because uh, I did have a guy come into my daughter's room when she was it was early on in her sickness and she we really didn't know I mean, we, we joked. Um, In fact, I I wrote a book um, that that released in August and uh, it wasn't about her illness, but her illness was part of my deconstruction, Uh part of my, and, uh, and I joked because I, I wrote that we joked, she and I joked because we have a morbid sense of humor. She and I, we share this, that, that was one of the things that was so hard about us. We're so much alike. I mean, she's, She's my twin and like a lot of... Anyway, but we, I called her Schrodinger's daughter, you know, way before she woke up from her coma because she was alive and dead simultaneously. Oh I mean, she was connected to all this stuff. She was technically alive, but there was nothing going on. Like every bit of her that was her was not present. And so I joked about her being Schrodinger's daughter. Um, she found it amusing. Her mother did not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, she found... She saw no humor in that at all. Um, <laughs> But I did have a, I did have a, you know, early on in her illness, we were, I was still serving on staff at a church, and I had a lot of church people come in the beginning. And we were 200 miles away from home in this bigger hospital um, because of the severity of her illness, and I had a couple come that I don't know, I mean, I've known for a long time, but we don't, we're not friends per se, and he came in and did his thing and um, asked me if there was any unconfessed sin in her life that was keeping her from receiving her healing. And I nearly threw him through a window. Oh my! Yeah, he and I do not talk anymore. Oh my! <laughs> uh, and there were well, there were there were choice words spoke. I'm like, you seriously need to go. Uh, I think I wrote in the book that he about found out what it was like to fall out of a third story building that day. But so there are dumb things I remember.
2: <laughs> so my wife and I, my son is is, is in. He's I think he's like two. Yeah, he first. was young, man. He was little. Well, his first surgery, he was eight months old. But I, this was his second surgery, I believe. And uh, so we're in what's called MCU, which is monitored care unit, which is you leave at ICU and you get to go to MCU. And this lady comes up to us and asks if she could pray for our child, our son. And I, and I told her no. And she got very, very angry. Well, my reasoning for telling her no is that her son was in there because her child was burned by boiling water thrown on her son by her, by his father. Yeah, I don't think I need your prayers, lady. And I'm like, there's nothing, there's nothing, in, there's nothing in you that tells me that your prayer is going to help my child. So I told her no, which she was beyond angry that I had the audacity to tell her I didn't want her to pray for my child. I was like, I don't think you're in a place where you should be praying for anybody.
1: <laughs> own I'm not sure you're qualified.
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, I mean it it became deeper than that. I mean, there was other issues with that. But I mean that was uh that was one of those moments where it was like not all not all these quote unquote and their big air quotes blessings from God are blessings. You know, yeah, just for because sure. you just because you say it in Jesus' name doesn't mean
1: that it is actually in Jesus' name. Yeah. Sometimes that's the definition of taking the Lord's name in fame. Right. Uh-huh. That's and, so, uh, and so That's it was word.
2: the first time I like openly stood up against someone who was a, again, huge air quotes, proclaimed Christian who wanted to pray for my child. And I've, you know, in the past I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that seems like something that might help. But this time I was like, no, I don't I don't <laughs> see where what you are offering is of any help. Yeah, right now I get uh, that. Go, go to your child, help your child. Mm-hmm. I'll help
0: my child. The, the the what what we are talking about are the mistakes that are made, the missteps, and wh- wh- whereas what we were saying a moment ago what is grounded and anchored in as, as as true and valuable is for the person who is mourning the person who is struggling to be heard and understood. That's the key for them to be heard and understood. Therefore, a connection is made. Two or three are, have got, been gathered. A connection is made that is, is supportive and healing. It, it was, th- 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 let, let me share a quick story. The, the, the um. Back in my days, I also it uh, uh, was in the parish uh, ministry. Back in the seventies, I graduated from seminary in seventy two, and the rest of most of the rest of the seventies, I was uh, in the parish ministry. Then I went back to graduate school and pastoral counseling. And you know, there would be those times we we all know about this that someone would come to me and say, "Can you do my say my dad's funeral?" My Dad lives in another town he doesn 't have a pastor or they don 't go to church. Would we'll do the funeral of course i 'd be glad to and so, what I would tell them to do is what I think most all of us pastors would is then at six thirty tomorrow uh, uh, afternoon, get all of your siblings and your mom together in your den and I want to sit down and I want you to to bring to me the stories about your father about his life bring the adjectives that would describe him and the stories that uh, that would describe him and let's talk about it so we would meet for an hour and a half and they would tell me all the stories about their dad who had just died so i could could compile those into uh into the service the next day the memorial service the next day and we would have we would do that for my sake so we could so i could get all those great stories and then the next day we would have the memorial service and after the memorial service they would do the obligatory attaboys about i'd done a good job in the service etc etc and then they would pause and then without ceasing they would say you have no idea how important it was to us to get together yesterday And they got to tell their stories. They got to talk about their father and their husband. They got to talk about, in in some cases, their pain, but mainly they got to remember him because what they were doing is they they were putting their their, uh, photo album together of his life. And that was when I first learned the importance of them being heard and understood. That, that, that was that was just, I, I lucked into it, but it was transformational for them to have a context that someone was saying, tell me about it. And and then I learned, oh, okay, now I see the value. And so then I do that just as the two of you do in individual relationships. I just know that, that it, it is transforming, transformative it in uh, uh, how healing that can be well and, and sadly I think we've all
2: been to services where we listen to whoever is doing the service and they did not do that
0: mm-hmm.
2: I, I've been to services of family friends or relatives and I'm like that's not at all the person. You, that's just completely made up. I don't know what uh-huh. you're. Uh-huh. Someone, someone gave you some idea of who this person is. I don't know who. I don't know who we're listening to about right now. But that's not
1: who I know. Right. I'd rather so, hear you say, you know, this guy was a real son of a bitch, <laughs> than, <laughs> than tell me a yeah. bunch of lies about him. We stumbled upon that John with John Wesley, which always struck me as super ironic that my cousin's name was John Wesley. My parents, his parents, weren't religious in the slightest. That's well, because he, he was named was, after John Wesley Harding, uh, not John Wesley. How do I not? I did. I'm today years old did when I figured you, that. out. Did you not know that?
2: Yeah, he, I was thought he was named after no John Wesley okay, so Harding.
1: He was named Harding. after the outlaw, not the pastor. <laughs> oh well, that that explains it whole oh, hell of a lot! That that tells me all. How do I not know that? Holy crap! I don't okay. know. I don't but know. regardless, we when when we did gather for John West, I, and, I, and it, here's what's cool, Ron. I think a lot of what you touch on in this book, I think some of us have stumbled on accidentally, you know. And and I think your book puts words to that and goes, okay, put, maybe it puts a little structure to it. But we we happened upon that because we all hung around, you know, in the day or two before his memorial. And all the cousins gathered and all the family gathered. And what did we do? And we, we, there was, I mean, mostly it was, we just told a bunch of stories. We laughed, we cried, we drank. Um, somebody, you know, my cousin David bawled uncontrollably and lost his mind. Um, and we all sat there and just let him because he needed to.
2: And we need to acknowledge, and this is something that, you know, my parents, I don't know if they did it on purpose or on accident. But My parents made their their house available to all of us with no expectations. Zero. Yeah, they they let us us available. (laughs) They let us be loud. They let us be obnoxious. They let us cry. They let us laugh. They let us drink. They let us be stupid. So we could all find a place of healing. And I don't know if that was done on purpose or just it was just coincidence or on accident. But that was the most amazing day. Yeah, it was super I, cathartic. I can't, even, I can't even explain how important that day was to us. That my parents that they gave us that space. What a gift!
1: Yeah, you're right. That was a and that was a good and that was a good because we were all still very raw. I, I think I got. I, I think I, I mean, I was there within a day or well, a couple of days of of his passing, maybe three or four days. But we were, so we were all. This is all very raw. This is all just happened. And, and we're sitting around with his daughters who are really feeling the, the, the the pain of this. And my parents don't drink. They don't, they don't approve of it. And we all sat around and got pretty drunk. Um, (laughs) and dealt with our grief and talked to, and like John said, laughed and were loud and obnoxious and stupid. And, but again, some of that, it was just sort of intuitive. Like we needed, I think on some level, we all, we were all old enough, you know, to know, I think we needed to have this, we needed to have this experience where we could, we could, speak of this lost family member in ways that were not just laden with grief. It was also, let's talk about, you know, we told stories and we talked about all the dumb stuff we did and, you know, talked about getting chased off the pot farm with a rifle. But well, John, just remember that. You weren't there. But um, still, <laughs> so it's just dumb stuff. Anyway...
0: Oh my gosh. But 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 it was it was talking about dumb stuff. But good good gracious, that is is exactly what you needed to be talking about. Absolutely. You were you were you were celebrating your cousin's life. Yeah. And it's and and it's the stuff that stories.
1: Yeah, and it's the stuff that John and I now, after, you know, a few years removed from the we go we go back to this all the time. Yeah, and 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 so I'm, I I love what you said, and I'm, I'm, let me let me let me hearken back to that thing you said a while back, where where you know you've kind of moved along, and again it's a it's a process, so, but you've 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 progressed in your healing. When now, when I think of my cousin John, I'm like John. I I don't immediately think of the grief. I think of oh man, remember that one time exactly, I asked, I, and I I remember. Yeah, it's usually dumb things because we were dumb, but that's helpful. So um what I what i love about your book uh, the many many things first of all if you've made it this far and you're still listening thank you <laughs> this is a book I, if you haven't because if you haven't dealt with this you will but the likelihood is most of us have it's it's the one common experience right it's the one experience that is, that is truly human um that you don't get out of this world without experiencing some pain and some grief um and so it makes sense to have some tools available to you to help you navigate through some things that are difficult. And so what I really appreciate a book like about a book like yours is the very practicality of it. And, and a lot of it just comes down to, like we've been talking about a bunch, being able to put words to things that you're feeling in the abstract and go, oh, that makes sense, okay? I'll, I can call it that. And it helps to process that. Go ahead, John.
2: I was just saying, the one thing I want to say, because you mentioned it right at, right at the beginning of your book, is you use your faith because that is your background. So you mention, but you don't mention it a lot. You really don't. You know, I, yeah. I've read the, you know, it's not the book. It's uh, heavy-handed. There's a few times where you bring the Bible or a verse in here and there, but it's not about that. It's about experience. It's about, and we've all had this experience, where regardless if we're Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Taoist, whatever you, faith you follow, you have had this experience in your life. You you use the Bible because that's your that's your background, but you could take almost every single one of those Bible verses out, and the book still holds true.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. I have uh, there, there, there are times, John, that that I have uh, have um, spoken at a at a conference uh, like um, um, the Bereaved Parents of uh, the USA conference, and and uh, and. I have. I've said the same thing to them that I'm going to use. Uh, I will. I will reference my faith, uh, not to to talk to try to talk you into mine, but it's the only faith I have, and I tap into the its richness, just as if I were Jewish or I were Buddhist or Hindu, I would be tapping into that faith. So you translate it into your faith, and I will have. After the talk, after the presentation, I'll have someone of a different faith come up and say, "Oh, let me tell you how my faith." And, and we, and what we discover, of course, is that each of our faiths just have a different way. We're both pointing to the truth. Each of our faith just has a different way of expressing it. But but it's the, the truth is the truth, and, and it's it's embodied in each of our faiths, each of the major faiths. So even th- I would just say that
2: even though your book talks about the, the loss of a spouse i think what the what is what the truths are in this book work for cuz you talk about the loss of your son as well in this book so i think that the truths that are being spoken in this book speak to someone who's lost anybody yeah and like i said you know and, and i don't want i don't want to make it sound trivial but the the book is a quick read it's it's not it's it's not like super academic it's your truth. Uh, it's what a hundred and forty some pages, right? All right, that's One hundred forty three pages. I would recommend anybody to buy this book and sit down if they if they've lost anybody, and just sit down and read this book and be willing to under to listen to what what is being said in this book. You know, I, you know, Nat and I and, and you, we we've we've gone through this grief without a book like this. And out of this is where we get to the point where you wrote this book and I can look at this book and say, there's truth here. Yeah, for real. And and, and I wish I had this book five years ago. Yeah. And that's what I would say is like, buy the book. Yeah. Read the book. If you're in any place, or if you have a friend who is going through this, it's a book that I would recommend that anybody who's going through any of this kind of trauma, that It it gives you permission to be angry. It gives you permission to be um, lost. It gives you permission to all of that, knowing that they're, like you say, I know there's a light at the end of this tunnel. I might not see it yet, but if I keep moving this way, I'm going to see it. Nat and I have had a friend who said something similar. Is like the only way, the only path to the other end is through. You can't go around. You can't go over. You can't go under. You have to go through. Exactly. The only path to the end of this is through it, and that's that's kind of what I get from your book. Is like, yeah, th- there. Uh, what is the, di- the difference between light and illumination? I think is another thing you talk about.
0: Uh, right, there I, is, yes. it's it's not enough that that the, the the light that we experience early on is not enough to elim- eliminate the darkness, it but it is enough to illuminate our way through it.
1: Right. Nice.
2: Yeah. And that, and I, I really, I think that's that's. That is this book in a nutshell. It really is. is this idea of illuminating your path. Yeah, To get exactly. through. Uh, to get through the grief, to get through the anger, to get through the other side where, yes, grief's not going away, mourning's not going away, but the way you react to it and the way it connects to you and the person that you've lost uh, becomes healthier and more whole I mean, I, like Nat and I have talked about, you've talked about your wife. We have, we have memories and we're going to hold on to those memories and those memories become more cherished. Exactly. And more beautiful. Because I'm not living in a, in a world of what if I'm living in a world of I got to be with them for that long. And I have all these memories with them as opposed to, you know, I could, I could live a whole life of like what ifs, but who, who, who benefits from that? Nobody benefits from that. But I can benefit from but yeah, I had I had fifty years with him and you had fifty years with your wife. And look at all the memories we made. And let's let's remember those.
0: And 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 if 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 I don't have the either the the guts or the awareness and it may be I was never exposed to how I'm supposed to go about mourning, but if I don't do it for whatever, whatever reason, then that is going to block my being able to tap into the joy of remembering that life and to remember those those memories and to have those great belly lives that we <laughs> have as we remember those great experiences. But my my grief is going to be like like having blinders on. I'm not going to be able to see it unless I mourn. That's gonna free me up to be able to to, to to claim all the richness of that relationship. But I've gotta have the guts to do it. One of the things that, you know, and we'll start to wind down.
1: I think it's, this has been great, by the way, but this is one of the things that I believe. And I go, you know, not, not to harp on religion, but this is the, one of those things that like Christianity doesn't do well versus like my, say my Jewish friends who have a very, seems like a robust sense of how to lament and how to mourn. And there's a process that's set out. No one, no one expects you to just be okay you know, the next day and go back to work. No, you're supposed to cover the mirrors in your house, man. You're supposed to wear black for a period of time. You're supposed to, you're in mourning. And there's allowances made for, you know, people needing to, maybe I just don't need to be around people for a while. And in my circles growing up, it was, again, either implied or or not. But it was, you know, there was a rush to get over it you know in a rush to get on with, with with whatever was next and i don't think it's healthy you know I, I i don't think i know it's not healthy so um maybe that's something we you know as i go through like say the jewish scriptures and there's an entire book called lamentations where like like we're encouraged to voice out loud all the ways in which god has disappointed us and that's fine like god can take it it's okay <laughs> Like, I feel like uh, George Costanza at Festivus time. Yeah, I got a lot of <laughs> problems with you, God. I want to air my grievances, but I was going to say this before I before I let you go. Um, there are podcast interviews we have scheduled that I like super look forward to. And there are some that I'm like, I don't even know what to expect. And yours is on the, I don't know what to expect. I, and I was, I have been so thoroughly um, surprised. By how, how, what, what awesome experience this was. This one has taken me by surprise. Um, I wasn't sure how, you know, again, I wasn't sure how it would go. And wow, what a, what a lovely conversation. What a, what a, what a great time. And you're a, I just think you're an, an incredible ambassador for, for what you're, what you write about and what you, what
0: I think you're going to help a lot of people. That's what I think. Um, so I'm appreciative for that. This has been such a rich experience to to get with the two of you. I first of all, I thoroughly enjoy you both, and and I, uh, I have so much respect for what you're doing, and and the the depth with which you, the, the personality with which you do it, but also the depth with which you do it. This has been this has been a, has been a great a uh, great evening. Yeah, yeah. I agree, hundred yep. percent,
1: John. Gonna knock me over with a feather, man. I'm like <laughs> we're gonna have a podcast. And we're gonna talk about what? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, it, it's it's really been. I, again, the, there's sometimes I'm just like, I just don't really know what to expect, and then and, and I'm I'm usually pleasantly surprised because John books awesome guests, so that's just what John does. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so no, if may
0: you've, I may I make one comment on, on what you were of just course. saying? Yeah, before we before we wrap up, I find it it very interesting. So, so many people. Who are mourning um, when, as, as you were talking about the hurry to get over it and how the Jewish traditions are, are so rich in, in allowing people the time. One of the things that is so profoundly saddening to people, it just breaks their heart, is when they, they will say, uh, My community expects me to be over it by now. And one of the things that that I always think of and sometimes verbalize is that the origin of the word compassion, uh, patai, meant it had two meanings. One is to suffer with, and the other is to endure. And when I think of compassion, if I am at my compassionate best, in that empathetic sense, I'm going to suffer with them. I'm going to resonate with them, and if I am at my compassionate best, I'm not going to be in a hurry. I'm going to endure. I'm going to hang in there with them, and uh, and, and and be patient with them because this, this healing takes a long time, and it needs that support. Well, and at the end of the day,
1: every single one of our experiences is unique, and so I can't exactly. prescribe exactly how you should process grief. You know. I I know people who process grief way differently than me and it would be wrong of me to, to sit there and say, well, no, 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 no. That's not how you do that. Um, no, no, no. It's, it's a unique experience. We process this stuff at our own pace, first of all, right? I mean, if it takes you, it takes you how long it takes you. Um, and then, um, but in your own way as well, some of us process with humor and we're maybe inappropriate and (laughs) and we make jokes and, uh, um, but that's my process, John. So leave me alone.
0: Um, hey, just, hey I'm,
2: I'm, a, I'm a I'm a former firefighter. There's nothing yeah. more dark than but, the humor of no. firefighters getting together and joking They're, about a call they were on. Yeah, um, that's it's it's Gosh. it's one of the most healthiest places I've ever been. Yeah, but if you've but ever up on those conversations, but nobody but you should be involved in that conversation. No,
1: because one of my us. really good friends was a first responder, paramedic, and. Yeah, you do not want to hear that guy tell stories because he's not it, It's
2: it's there. It's our way of decompressing some of the really horrific things we see.
1: Well, otherwise, Just yeah, how do you life. process horror every single right. day? You got to find a way to get through it. So. And, yeah, um, I mean,
2: it, it, the first time I I sat with a group of guys dealing with that, I was I was I was astonished and overwhelmed. And by the end of it, I'm like, no, I get it, I get it. You need it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly but again, right. it's 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 for a very specific group of people, right? I would not say these same jokes around people who don't have that experience. I would not say the same jokes that I have about my cousin and his passing with people who've never understood losing a, a loved one to suicide. You know, sometimes the humor is dark and sometimes it needs to be. Um, but at the same time, it's it it has helps me. But oh, would, you're like, processing it. Yeah, Nat, Nat and I have had like very humorous moments that, that no one's going
1: to hear that humor. But he and no, I, no, they and they no one it. else understands. It. <laughs> <They should>. It's <laughs> definitely, yeah, I would not recommend. But anyway, uh, we're going to wrap up because uh, we've kept you long enough. I know and, we uh, really have. Yes, and I, have, I really appreciate yeah, you sticking I, sticking I through for, it with us. Thanks for sticking around. The book again is called The Quiet House: um, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. And I'll echo what John said. If, if that's not your experience that you've lost a spouse, don't, don't let that discourage you. Like this is, these are, these are universal truths for processing through grief and dealing with it. Just so, so just so happens that that's a specific kind of grief that he's talking about, but I, I, I would recommend it for anyone, um, because there's honestly there are precious few I think really good books written about this. I don't think there's enough good books written about how to process grief and ways to process grief. So don't let that discourage you. Definitely go buy it on on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Um, we'll link to all his stuff in the in the show notes at the Absolutely. end. Make sure you yeah. can, can can check it out. But again, Ron, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, that was
0: an unexpected pleasure to talk to you and yep. and just get to hang out with you for a little bit. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a joy.
1: Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.